From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. This morning, we speak first with physicist, professor, and author Shohini Ghosh, who illuminates the unsung heroines of math, physics, and science in her new book, Her Space, Her Time, How Trailblazing Women Scientists Decoded the Hidden Universe. Then, we have all seen images from the James Webb Space Telescope, the galaxies, stars, nebulas, but we haven't really seen images of the telescope. Then we, so we talked this morning. We talked with science writer Chris Wanjek and NASA photographer Chris Gunn about their time documenting the building of the James Webb Space Telescope. Stay with us. We'll be back with these two interviews when we return. You're listening to Cool Science Radio on KPCW Park City. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. and I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Overcoming invisibility isn't typically a characteristic or strength attributed to scientists, but for the many women who revolutionized physics and astronomy, creating the foundations of discovery and research for the men they worked with, they were the unseen trailblazers of modern science. That is until today. Physicist, professor, and author Shahidi Ghos illuminates these unsung heroines of math, physics, and science in her new book, Her Space, Her Time, how Trailblazing Women Scientists Decoded the Hidden Universe. Shahini, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Right in your introduction, you talk about how in Canada, where you're from, more than half of the people there cannot name a female scientist. I found that appalling and astonishing. But then I thought, well, here in the U.S., what are our statistics and how many do I even know of? How are these women not being recognized? Even modern day scientists, are we are we not talking about scientists in general? Because I think a lot of us can't even name a male scientist. That's a good question. Um, I think that success record of people naming men is a little higher because <laughs> people do know about Einstein and Newton and you know people who, in their own field, for example, you know um, Darwin and so on. So. I think, though, that generally speaking, women are absolutely missing from any of our science textbooks. All of the examples and images used, for example, are also mostly very gendered. And that, of course, has an impact. These days, if you go online and Google, for example, famous physicists, try that at home. You will see that there's a whole list of images that Google produces. But even Google has learned to ignore the women. Because if you go back and then do another search and put in famous women physicists, there's actually a whole list. So Google knows, but chooses, has learned to choose not to include them when you do searches for just women physicists, or I mean, famous physicists. So I think this is why we have a culture where there are particular roles. And when we think in our heads, if someone says, just imagine a scientist, we automatically imagine one gender over another. This is pretty common and it's been well tested. There's these famous draw scientist studies that confirm this. So I think that's kind of why we tend to selectively think about scientists. We are programmed to, it's part of the culture. Well, before we dive into so many of the fascinating women in this book, you know, you just, I mean, not that you just simply Googled female scientists for your research in this book, but I can imagine so much of the history was tucked away or discarded. How did you go about truly digging in and finding the truth and the facts about these women? Because it's, one, it's an immense, immense book full of so much fascinating scientific history in general. But to find the details and all the information on this women must have been a feat in and of itself. Well, yeah, it was quite a challenge. I'm, of course, as a physicist, I am certainly trained to dig in and do research, things like this, but not not usually on humans and individuals, more on, on science. But I think that certainly did help me to be able to use those tools of research to really go back to what we call, you know, as far back to original sources as possible. So as a scientist, the way I approached the book, though, was really about telling the scientific story about these women. I do want to say that this is not actually a complete biography of every woman in the book. For one thing, there's like two dozen women or so, and there's not enough space to do each of them justice. 
So that's why I wanted to talk about the science, lead with their science, which is really amazing and inspiring, and also allowed me an entry point because when I went and explored the scientific discoveries, there are actually scientific publications. Some of those publications, the women were involved as authors. Sometimes they were only given acknowledgments in the footnotes, but there was actual uh, documentation there that I could follow in order to tell that scientific story. Apart from that, absolutely, I mean, once you start learning about all this science and the discovery and follow back to who these women were, I was able to find, you know, some documentation in archives. All of them had, well, not all of them, but many of them had notebooks and diaries and journals. They gave talks about their work and their lives. Some of them did these things called, you know, these sort of uh, living history kind of interviews. So that's how I was able to try to build a picture of them. But definitely uh, from, I guess, my perspective as a scientist and try to connect to them and their experiences from my own experiences. That's really how I try to build the picture in the book. It's not complete, but it's from that perspective of a scientist. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Shohini Ghost. She is an award-winning quantum physicist and she has written a new book called Her Space, Her Time. Shohini, you just said something that really caught my attention, that you you related exper- your own experiences as being a scientist, a physicist, to a lot of the stories that you read about these women, whether it was in some sort of living history, like you say, and thank goodness for living histories, and thank goodness that there were journals and things like that that they kept. And that would suggest that things haven't changed because you compared your experiences to theirs. So could you comment on the degree to which things have changed or if they have? (laughs) That's a great question. So I would say that things have not changed as much as I would like to be able to claim. Of course, there has been change over the years. Some of these women were the first ever to even get a degree in in the universities they went to. Some of them couldn't get degrees. For example, some women who were able to study at places like Harvard and you know even in the UK, Oxford and so on, never actually got a degree because women were not even given degrees. So of course, we're past that point, I'm happy to say. But in many other ways, we haven't really changed. For example, I talk in the book about how I was often the only woman in my entire physics class. And that's like about 100 years later compared to some of the women I talk about who were also the first and only woman in their classroom. That should have changed. To me, that seems to be something we could have worked on and done a much better job. More broadly, I would say that it's not just about the numbers and the representation piece. But of course, experiences, and as I was talking about, there are roles that women are seen to be good at some things versus other things, and we don't necessarily fit this stereotypical identity of a physicist, or we're not given the credit of being able to have the skills that apparently excellent science is based on. And none of this is actually true. That's just all stereotype and bias, and that hasn't changed. And unless that is really something we can address, we're not actually going to see that kind of big transformative change where we have good representation for women as well as an opportunity to have equal access to resources and grants and funding and celebration of achievement and just success in science, which of course we need not just to be able to celebrate women, but science needs it because we have so many global challenges and we're losing out on all the progress that we could make and for all these silly reasons. So I hope we make better change. Right. Well, one thing is for certain that now in this modern era, and maybe I'll put modern in air quotes, (laughs) when there are women in science, at least you're talking about these things. Whereas a lot of the women that you wrote about, they probably had no idea because they didn't talk to each other either. They may have had no idea that they had fewer resources than their male counterparts or that they had smaller offices than their male counterparts or maybe no offices at all or access to labs or things like that. So is it true that you're now at least talking about it because you're all over TED Talks and things like that? (laughs) I'd say yes and no in, in the sense that 
I think you're right that we are having a bigger conversation about it. Um, because we are certainly more aware as women scientists in the field, and there's this growing conversation just much more broadly about inclusion. However, I will say that the women that I uh, describe in the book, they went through such clear, you know, in your face kind of bias where they were just told, oh yeah, you're not good enough for this. Or people would just straight up take their discovery, build on it, and then get Nobel prizes. So they were well aware. And some of them absolutely did speak out about it once they had enough of a platform and got really famous because the kinds of discoveries they made became so huge that no matter how much bias there was, they were famous just based on the, their fantastic science. So when that happened, you know, when they were asked to speak at different forums, they would talk about how women deserved to be given more opportunities. One woman famously actually refused uh, an award. Her name was Margaret Burbage. She was given this big award for women in astronomy, and she refused it publicly to make that statement, saying women shouldn't just be given awards for women, but should be considered for the top awards, generally speaking. And that had a huge impact, actually, led to uh, the, the kind of conversations we have even today about the role of um, you know awards and celebration and equity and all of that good stuff. So they did actually take a stand. They were were absolutely activists. They were advocates. They just didn't have as much of a platform, perhaps, than something like a TED Talk. I wish all of them could have given TED Talks. Can you imagine? It would have been fantastic. <laughs> so many of these women were just absolutely fascinating. And right at the beginning, you started talking about Mina Fleming and how she had no formal education, but yet she was one of the most groundbreaking pioneers in astronomy. Tell us more about Mina. I, she's somebody that I would just love to have met. Yeah, she is, uh, yeah, really an incredible person because she was a teacher by training in the UK, but moved to Boston with her husband and her baby that she had while she was in Boston, but soon after her husband left her. So she was a single mom in the early 1900s, can you imagine? So very desperate needed money so she took a job as a housekeeper working for this person named Pickering who was the director of the Harvard Observatory and he eventually offered her a bigger role because I guess he noticed that she had all these amazing skills and she became part of this group called the Harvard Computers and these were all women who would analyze all of the observations of the stars, all these images that the telescopes were taking, and actually analyze the light that was collected by the telescopes and these photographs, where they would separate out the, the photographs, actually, the, the, well, the telescopes would separate out the light into all the different colors called the wavelengths to make this thing called a spectrum. And so these women would actually analyze these spectra to sort of classify and catalog what they see. And Fleming was so good at this work, which required a lot of skill because you had to sort of look at these very hazy pictures by eye. They were on these giant glass plates and then do all these measurements and calculations to figure out what the colors were and the pattern there, because different types of colors would tell you what kind of gas was in the star. So it's a way to figure out the composition of stars. And Fleming was so good at it that eventually she became the head of the whole entire team and didn't have astronomy background at all when she started, but became amazing to the point where she noticed patterns in what she was seeing and decided to put the stars in different categories. So she created a star classification, the very first one that became the basis for future improvements. And it's still part of the classification we use today. She built a catalog of hundreds of thousands of stars. Imagine that, a housekeeper turned astronomer. And so much of the work that you talk about was so incredibly detailed, observations, picking out a fine, you know, one little needle in a tiny haystack. And again, it seems like most of it was done by women, at least the work you talk about. Is that because do women have some sort of innate ability or are we better than men at really noticing something that detailed or picking out something of such tiny significance that we do it better than men? I don't think there's actually any scientific evidence to show that there's any kind of observational 
skills that are different between men and women. There's also no evidence that there's any kind of computational skills or analytical skills that's different. In fact, there's been studies on you know kids and the way they develop over the years. There's also standardized tests, of course, that are administered yearly to students all around the world. And none of them have actually shown anything that is statistically significant in terms of differences in those kinds of skills. So that being said, are there context differences? Of course, you know, as I said, there are very, very strong cultural kinds of factors that influence what we think we are good at and how we even think and what we believe is something that we can stand behind as a discovery. So I do agree that women spend a lot of time, and these studies have shown that women will take a lot more time if they're doing research to make sure every T is crossed and every I is dotted before they would even submit it as, as something that's solid enough to be published, for example. So mm -hmm. that's certainly true, not because there's an actual difference in our observational skills, perhaps, but because we've been part of a culture where we have to sort of almost be more convincing. <laughs> and therefore, we make sure to check everything and notice everything. And that perhaps is a good thing because in the end, sometimes that tiny, tiny little signature of some kind of a particle track that's not quite the way it is, tells you, oh, there's a new fundamental particle there. <laughs> so yeah, I think there is something that there. Yeah, well, it's for certain that women cannot, I guess the saying is rest on their laurels, or in other <laughs> words, rest on their gender, because we're constantly needing to dot the I's, cross the T's, making yeah. sure that we're doing a better job than, you know, maybe our male counterpart. That reminds me, and I'm sorry, this is a bit of a departure from your book, but you were telling a story in one of your TED Talks about a married couple who worked together, Isabella Carley, and her husband ended up winning the Nobel Prize for their joint work on chemical structure. And what a story. I, I can understand in some ways, like if there's a lead scientist and then the women who also worked were maybe mentioned, but yeah. these were husband and wife. Wow. Right? It's yeah. outrageous. And I wonder what that did to their marriage, to be honest. Uh, but you're right. It's just wow. Just wow, right? So I think the parallel story that I would bring up, though, is this other power couple in science, which is Marie Curie and her husband, Pierre Curie. And that's actually quite the opposite story, where Pierre Curie was given the Nobel Prize, you know, way back in 1901, I believe it was, or 1902, I can't quite remember. But he was offered the Nobel Prize for his joint work with Marie Curie. In fact, she was the leader, actually, in the work, and he acknowledged that. And he wrote back to the Nobel Committee saying, no, 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 I'm not the one you should give it, the prize to, and I will not accept it unless you acknowledge the contribution of my wife. And they did that. So that to me is such a great example of allyship. And it didn't retract or take away anything from his contribution or his discovery. So, and this is actually quite common as in there are many men who I've talked about in the book who are well-known people like Ernst Rutherford. So they all also won Nobel Prizes, Cecil Powell. None of them actually made that choice to include the women who did contribute. And if they had, I think it would have had a whole different story. Well, it certainly would have, because I bet that you could show the list in all of your table of contents in which <laughs> you mention all the women, all the scientists <laughs> that you're talking about. And the one person that people would know, probably 99% <laughs> of people out there would know of the name Marie Curie. That's so interesting. And what a great husband. <laughs> yes. And it's funny, I actually know her name more than his. Right? Yeah. She, absolutely. She, of course, is basically called, you know, legendary status, I would say. And even Google, by the way, includes her. When, <laughs> when you do that search for famous physicists, she's always on that list. Well, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about her, because I think many of us know of her, but we don't know about the work in radioactivity that she did. She was incredible. She started out, she was born in Poland, but uh, moved to Paris, where she studied physics and got her degree and, and remained there, met Pierre and the two of them jointly 
explored this new thing called radioactivity at the time. It was known that these, uh, you know, you looked at different materials and they would give out this strange radiation. There was not a lot known about it. And so she and Pierre jointly did some of the foundational work to understand and characterize that radiation. In fact, they coined the term even radioactivity. And they were able to show, or she actually was one of the first to show that radiation comes from somewhere inside the atom, which was already quite a revolutionary idea because people used to think that the atom is the most indivisible uh, you know, unit of matter. And she was one of the first to question that because of her studies. And that was one of many contributions. They went on together to explore what, what kind of materials they could find radioactivity from. And in the process, they discovered new elements. So radium, for example, was discovered by them. Polonium was another one discovered by them. So she did a lot of incredible work and then went on to um, apply all of this knowledge for you know applications of radiation treatment, for example, in healthcare. She herself was involved during the war to you know drive these little sort of uh, mobile units using her skills to be able to treat patients and things like this. So she really was as amazing as you would expect for somebody as legendary as her. In the book, it's not just the scientists, the female scientists that were invisible or ignored. I was so incredibly fascinated by the Navajo women that were building mm. the silicon chips. You know, we'd never heard of that, but that's probably to be expected. Tell us about these women and why they chose them to create this silicon chip manufacturing company in Shep Sheprock, New Mexico. Honestly, I think they were scientists because they did all of the kinds of work that we define for scientists, except they were not given the label of scientists, I agree. So yeah, this place uh, in Shiprock uh, in New Mexico that, in fact, I used to drive by a lot when I was a student back in the day when I was doing some research work at Los Alamos and working on my PhD in New Mexico. And I used to drive by this beautiful rock structure, you know, this giant uh, rock in that flat desert. And I didn't know that there used to be a factory there. And it was set up by a company called Fairchild, which was actually the ancestor of Intel and all the other big computer companies in Silicon Valley. And they were uh, one of the first to be building computer chips back in the day using transistors. And they all had to be wired by hand back then. So I'm talking about very early in you know, 40s, 50s, and so on. At the time, they were looking for cheap labor who would be able to do this kind of work. And because Shiprock was you know, Navajo land, there wasn't really any unions or any such labor laws there. So they got the cheap labor they wanted. And that's why they hired these Navajo women. These women, yeah, were building and wiring these chips by hand, but they were very innovative in how they were designing these chips because the failure rates of their chips were very low. And that was really important because guess what you need really low failure rate chips for? Computers that you were going to use to go to the moon. This is why their contribution was really important and completely unsung in this huge, I mean, I don't even know how many articles and books and movies and TV shows we've seen about NASA's moon landing program, right? But I don't think I've ever heard of the Navajo women's story in any of them. No, I hadn't either. And we'll wrap this up with, tell us about Mary Golda Ross. I mean, it's hard enough for women, especially in those days, to break through the barriers of science, but she came at it with a whole other layer of difficulty or challenges. Mm -hmm. So Mary Golda Ross was the first Cherokee engineer to work on aerospace engineering. She worked at Lockheed Martin and was part of this elite group called Skunk Works that was first formed to design fighter planes during the war. She was a mathematician by training and she helped to develop this one such plane which became the workhorse of the war. P-38. And after the war, she was asked to stay on, unlike lots of women who, you know, joined the workforce during the war when the men were away. But then after the war, a lot of them were asked to leave, of course, and, you know, somehow forget that they were, you know, able to do all these 
jobs. But she was asked to stay because she was that good. And she went on to remain in this group that then developed, you know, rockets. So she got to be involved in developed this one particular rocket called Agena, which was a second stage rocket, which means it used to fire after the main rocket would launch. In the second stage, you needed something that was more maneuverable and very precise. And that's what Agena was. Uh, it became the workhorse of the space program and was used for hundreds of launches and involved in missions to Mars, to Venus, and also, of course, to the moon. So that was Mary Ross's contribution. And she went on to write literally handbooks about space exploration and also was a was very much a supporter of getting more indigenous scientists involved because of course even today there's a very very low proportion of indigenous scientists in the workforce in any area of stem to be honest and so she did speak out about it and she supported it and even funded it left her in her will resources to be able to promote that so yeah, she was a very inspirational figure and should be in all those textbooks that are still being written without any mention of her. Well, our guest today has been Shohini Ghost. She is a physicist, professor, and author of the book, Her Space, Her Time, How Trailblazing Women Scientists Decoded the Hidden Universe. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. We have all seen the images from the James Webb Space Telescope, the galaxies, the stars, the nebulas, but we haven't really seen images of the telescope itself, images from the years it took to build, images of the people who put in over 100 million person hours, images of the groundbreaking engineering that went into creating what some call the telescope that ate astronomy. Thanks to NASA photographer Chris Gunn and science writer Christopher Wanjek, we can now peer into the inner workings and massive undertaking that is the James Webb Space Telescope. It's all in their new book, Inside the Star Factory, the creation of the James Webb Space Telescope. It's NASA's largest and most powerful space observatory. Chris and Chris, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, I just want to tell you both that this book is mind-blowing. And so, Chris Gunn, let me start with you. Did you know that this project, and you've been photographing it all along, did you know that it would culminate in a book like this? No, I did not. In fact, early in photographing James Webb, I really, you start off photographing a lot of nuts and bolts and small pieces and that sort of thing. So you don't have an idea of what the final product is going to look like. And I, while I had seen drawings and uh, depictions of what the telescope would look like, I had never, uh, I never imagined that it would be so beautiful in the end and that I'd get to photograph it in French Guiana, for example. So no, I had no idea that it would culminate in a book as nice as what we put out. Right. On this show, we have talked to a lot of different people that were involved in the making and the projects involved in creating the James Webb. And yet, it, you know, and we've talked about the mirrors and the lenses and the various components. But until I saw this book, I didn't fully grasp the mind-blowing telescope that it is. And so Chris Wanjek, Tell us a little bit about your journey along the way as a science writer. And, you know, obviously you've been up close and personal with the James Webb. Well, Lynn, no, I had the exact same approach as you. Um, so I worked at NASA from 1997 to about 2007. And I left uh, NASA just as this uh, the James Webb was really to get going. I worked on it a little bit. And when I uh, wanted to start writing this book, I approached it as a science writer and thought about the astrophysicists and the theorists who were going to use it in the end. But then I saw Chris's images and I said, wow, this is all about the engineers, the machinists, the people behind this. And it just kind of blew my mind, as you were saying. I, I didn't realize that, that like the hands-on nature of making this, of inventing it, essentially. That's what one engineer told me, that they didn't build this, they had to invent it because these kind of concepts just simply didn't exist out there. So that changed my whole entire perspective of how this project was put together. It was all about the people. 
And you nailed it. We calculated it was 100 million people hours uh, putting this thing together. Uh, and it wasn't just the astrophysicists gave them an idea and the engineers and machinists had to run with it. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guests are NASA photographer Chris Gunn and science writer Chris Wanjek, and they're talking about their new book called Inside the Star Factory, the creation of the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, you were just talking about the engineers and the scientists and the machinists, and in the book, you profile a number of the people that worked on this, which I think is so great because we often see the finished product, the Hubble, the, the James Webb, but we don't really get an insight into the humans that made it possible. How did you choose the people you did, considering there are hundreds and hundreds of, if not thousands of people that have worked on the telescope? Uh, yeah, that, there was a lot to choose from. And uh, we knew that all the kind of tasks that were evolved. So we wanted a diversity in the tasks uh, and even the ages, the generation idea to show that there were these senior leaders making sure this whole thing worked. And then this a new generation is going to have to take over the next mission because these missions take <laughs> 15, 20 years to build. So people dedicate their lifetime to it. And it's um, very instructional for these older people to be teaching the younger people. So we had a lot to choose from, and we just uh, picked out we, what we felt were really interesting people that had a compelling story. What was surprising to me when I started talking to them is so many of them had what you would call, I say, humble backgrounds. They just grew up in with uh, humble means, but so many were from rural areas. John Mather grew up on a farm. Uh, Greg Robinson uh, grew up on a farm. I, I see this over and over again. and. Um, they had limited educational resources growing up, but they they overcame them and and really they had this thirst for knowledge all through their lives that really I, I think was instrumental in building the James Webb. Chris Gunn, you probably had to sift through millions of photos. I think the first photo in the book was from 2010. Am I right about that? Yes. But do you have any idea how many photos you actually took and what was your process of filtering through to publish the photos that really best showed what the process was? That's a great question. So at one point, there was a team of three photographers, and we were scientific, and our technical role was scientific and technical photographers for the project. And we probably made about a million images. A lot of these images will never see the public because they're very technical. Again, like I'm saying, we photographed the nuts, the bolts, um, we photographed every operation in great detail, both close up and far away. But the images that are in the book and other images of mine that have gone public and some of the others from the team are images that, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, uh, they have a feeling to them. You know, they bring you into the clean room. They allow you to see the process in great detail, but there's also a bit of an ep epic nature about them. So um, my approach was often to light these images, to compose these images, to actually make a photograph instead of just taking a picture. And those are the images that I've decided to, uh, to push out to the public and, and publish in this book. Well, indeed, Chris, and I am looking right now at this amazing photo that, I don't know, it just kind of brings home the scale and the magnitude. And it's not even a photo of any component of the telescope itself. It mm. is a picture of a contamination engineer standing before a wall that is <laughs> literally, it's a HEPA filter. It is made right. of hundreds of squares of two by two HEPA filters to create. Right. I would never know the level of cleanliness that you would have to have in that clean room can you describe this photo to our listeners? It's really incredible. Sure. That photograph was actually made, I was doing a lighting test for another series of images that I was going to make. And when my friend Zhao stood in front of the HEPA filter wall uh, with the light hitting him, you know, I realized I had something pretty great. So just to give you a description, that photograph is in NASA Goddard's giant clean room where the telescope was assembled. So that was my studio space for about, I don't know, seven or eight years while I was making images of the telescope. The clean room had been renovated. So we have this brand new clean floor and we have the giant wall, which goes basically from floor to ceiling. It's uh, hundreds of feet. 
I mean, if I were to describe this image, it's, it's probably one of the most moving images I've, I've ever captured in that space because the space is never really empty like that. And we have that single person, there's just a sense of awe. And we open up the book with that image because we want to sort of set the stage for the types of images you would see following. Yeah, sense of awe is a really good way to to describe it. It's how I feel when I look at this photo. It's it's incredible. So thanks for starting with that because well, I, don't, I hope yeah, I hope it sets the stage. <laughs> yeah, it does. It really hits home the just again the magnitude. So wow, yeah. incredible. For, for me, it was the scale of the project. I felt like you know the task is about to begin now, and we <laughs> just such a, a massive project to undertake inside a massive room. Right. Speaking of the scale of the project, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope ended up launching, well, we're almost on the second anniversary, you know, many years later than it was supposed to, and billions of dollars over budget. Chris, can you talk about that? Chris Wanjek, can you talk mm -hmm. about those numbers of magnitude? Yeah, no, I, I can. I, I think it was uh, money well worth it, an investment. You know, the, if if it can be any, if it can be critical of NASA for anything in building this, it was they they kind of gave a low ball estimate of how much this was going to cost. You know, when you start with this estimate of about a billion dollars to build it, the, the money doesn't come in one big gift to you. You know, you just get a little bit each year. But that that was the 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 kernel of the problem. It wasn't enough money to begin with. So when problems might arise. They didn't have enough money in that given year to address that problem adequately, so they have to put it off. And these things just began to grow and grow. And it really wasn't until 2010 when they fully realized uh, the impact of this. And then things got together. Once they were adequately funded and they understood the nature of the problem, things more or less started sailing along after 2010, and they were really hitting stride after that point. But when you see some of these images and, and, and the things that they were building, inventing, there was so much else that had to be built around it that cost money as well. You know, you had to create a transporter to carry the, the telescope from one place or another. You had to kind of create a, a train-like device to move these things in and out of uh, certain vacuum chambers, uh, which is one thing after another, which they knew in advance uh, that added up to this cost. Well, speaking of creating new things to transport, I didn't know, but I guess I hadn't thought about the fact they had to build the telescope and then ship it to French Guiana to launch. And you talk in the book about the fact that once it was fully assembled, it was too big to fit into a cargo plane, plus it was too heavy to go across any of the bridges to the airport. And so they had to transport it through the streets of LA to the docks, which that would have been a fun picture to see. Why was it? Why was Guiana the chosen launch site? That was a European contribution, as well as being perfectly positioned on the equator to uh, to get to the position they needed to be for launch. You know, in terms of after launch insertion into the proper orbit. So that's why French Guiana was chosen. Plus, uh, the the European Space Agency had the Ariane Five, which was a heavy launch vehicle with a reliable history and capable of uh, fitting web on top. So tell me about the, the stress points. I, I, I know there was probably a lot of tension and stress and anxiety building the telescope, but then once it goes onto a ship, it's at sea for 16 days. What was the stress like with that? And then what happened once it got to Guiana? Did it, you know, did they just pop it into the rocket and launch it off? Because I know Chris Gunn, you said you were there. Yes, so uh, I was there when it was loaded onto the ship in, in LA, and I was in French Guiana when it arrived. And I do know that they hit rough seas, that it had to go through the Panama Canal, uh, but there were there were a lot of moving parts. So an entire team, both from Goddard and from uh, Northrop Grumman, were sent down to French Guiana to support the launch campaign in French Guiana. So that was the stress point, is actually getting the European Space Agency's uh, spaceport in, in French Guiana ready for Webb because Webb was no ordinary spacecraft. It has cleanliness standards uh, and all, all sorts of requirements that made it different from just about any other spacecraft they had ever dealt with. So I was working with the contamination control team and with the shipping team 
ready to receive it when it came in. The boat comes in and then they immediately drive it onto base and bring it into the uh, the giant clean room there at French Guiana. And that's when we started our work in earnest to get it ready for the rocket. There was never any danger of anything as silly as theft, but you know, one of the first things I thought of, of you know, a $10 billion cargo essentially, you know, <laughs> uh, floating around in the Caribbean, it gives you up this idea of pirates. Uh, has there ever been a more precious cargo floating around in the Caribbean? Uh, I have to wonder. <laughs> well, you know, and, and there wasn't any press with respect mm. to where it was and, and, you know, when it was at certain points because of that, you know, to protect this this precious cargo. But it did make it safely. Mm -hmm. And I was on the beach when it arrived, and it was uh, pretty amazing to to see your, the friend that you hadn't seen in a while <laughs> return. Um, and then, like I said, I was there for uh, for two months, basically, until the, the launch on December 20, 25th, 2021. Oh. In reading the intro of the book, there was so much that you talked about, the un basically the unfurling of the telescope how you know it got to that l2 point it had to ex extend the, the the sun shields the the mirrors had to extend that was all very those were all very precise operations how many times did they practice that on earth in the in the facilities many many times <laughs> so the mirror the six and a half meter primary mirror was assembled at goddard space space flight center in Greenbelt, Maryland. And of course they practiced pulling the wings back and fully deploying the mirrors several times, both before and, and after vibration testing. And they also tested uh, the center of curvature or the, or the focus of the mirror to make sure it was operating correctly after they went through all of these tests. And then of course the telescope was shipped to Johnson Space Center. I traveled there and I photographed the test that was happening inside of the uh, Chamber A, the giant vacuum chamber that they have there. And of course, the mirror was deployed there, right? And they tested the actuators on the mirror. So they ran through dozens and dozens of tests. And then the telescope got shipped to uh, north of Grumman in Redondo Beach, just outside of Los Angeles. And of course, there the mirror was attached to the sun shield on the spacecraft bus. And then even then, they ran through various tests where they tested all the actuations, all of the things that could fail during this period of time where it, you know, it was being unfurled in space. And every time, if there was a hitch, they worked through it. And as you can tell, they, they must have done a good job of working through those hitches because everything worked flawlessly in space. Keep in mind that these tests are a simulation to get as close as possible, but you can't simulate zero gravity on Earth. So you have to anticipate how this is going to happen in, a, in essentially a zero gravity uh, environment. So, yeah. so they do make devices, right? Mm -hmm. So they engineer devices, invent devices, if you will, called G negation devices. So a lot of these movements and tasks were, were with these elaborate design, uh, you know, attachments to negate gravity. And, and that helps with that simulation mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible and hearing, you know, some of the scientists talk about, you know, as you said, Chris Gunn talking about saying goodbye to an old friend when it shipped off from Redondo Beach on its way through the Panama Canal to French Guiana. And also that feeling that the scientists had when they closed it down for the last time before the launch, knowing that the next time it opened up, it was going to be a million miles away. And that also felt, you know, kind of emotional, like, like you say, saying goodbye, it's it's just just incredible. Um, Chris, uh, Wanjek, I wanted to go back to some of the people because you do a really nice job picking out some people to talk about who were involved in the project from someone like Scott Willoughby, who was one of those people who didn't know he wanted to be a science a NASA scientist or astronaut at age five, like some of the other people. He came from a blue collar background and didn't think he could ever even go to college. Can you talk about him? Uh, yeah, he was amazing. Uh, I didn't know anything about him when I interviewed him. I He was some, in my mind, some big shot in Northrop Grumman. He was pulling us all together. And to hear his story about, it was, was a grandfather who gave him advice in a bar. Uh, he, that's, how, that's how he learned his, his basic skills of interacting with people, of, of helping his grandfather in a bar. 
And, and that became uh, crucial in keeping a team together, keeping a cohesive team together that, you know, he, he's able to uh, get a good feeling of people and, and help them along through uh, the troubles and not just order them around, but try to motivate them to do better. Uh, I got a little bit of that from Greg Robinson, too. He talked himself about being kind of a psychiatrist and <laughs> helping people through these uh, really trying and stressful times. Incredible story. Yeah, that where you learn, you know, you may have a PhD in astrophysics, but where you really learn your skills was from listening at your grandpa's bar to the uh -huh. people bellied up to the bar. I love it. And then there was Stephanie Milam, who knew at age six that she wanted to be an astronaut. And then one inch of height kept her from actually becoming an astronaut. But she found her way, didn't she? Yeah, right. It's another touching thing. And again, I didn't know these people from Adam and uh, and they were telling me these stories and I just saw a combination of this, like the irony in their lives or just this amazing background that in in ways they maybe they didn't realize themselves contributed <laughs> to their, their want, you know, this, she was cleaning beakers in a lab and a some type of commercial lab at one point, and then she realized the universe could be her chemistry lab. It doesn't have to be limited to uh, this one little place where she's working. And astrochemistry uh, uh, and astrobiology opened up for her. Chris Gunn, we've talked to so many people from NASA, you know, engineers, scientists, astronomers, but you are the first photographer, official NASA photographer. So how long has NASA had photographers and how did you get into this position? Because I'm sure it's a very coveted role. So, I mean, I think that NASA is intertwined with photography. So NASA documents everything that's done on the ground, first of all. And when we've sent people to space, they took cameras, right? So, you know, we're all familiar with the images that the Apollo astronauts made. So, so NASA and photography go hand in hand, astronauts are photographers, and there are uh, essentially NASA photographers and always have been. The majority of us are contractors, and I've been there since 2000, so what, 23 years. And when I first started, I didn't have a chance to do what everyone thinks that a NASA photographer would do. I, I basically photographed headshots and did events, uh, and I always wanted to be on the side where they uh, were doing the, the fun and cool stuff. And I, occasionally I got a chance to photograph a spacecraft. And at one time, uh, at, at one point, I, I got asked to join the Hubble Space Telescope mission as a photographer to document the last servicing mission. So that was from 2006 to 2009. Once that ended, uh, I was looking for a job and uh, the Webb Telescope was looking for a photographer. And, um, you know, the rest is kind of history with respect to that. I never intended or never thought that I'd be on a project for that long. So from 09 to 21, but it was, it was transformative, uh, in my, in my life as a photographer. Um, I, I've had a chance to see the photography, the technology in photography go from film-based photography to digital photography, uh, during my time at NASA. And, uh, you know, I, I simply... I'm honored to have been able to photograph Webb. So do either of you have a favorite photograph other than the, the first one with the wall of HEPA filters? Well, I love the cover. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the image that we used on the cover it is definitely one of my favorites. Uh, it was at the uh, made at the end of, dare I say, a, a 12, 13-hour day. It sort of represents the completed optical system, if you will, because the mirrors are aligned just like they are in space, except that the wings aren't exposed. So you have the secondary mirror out in front, you have the primary mirror, and you can see the light path because you can see in the primary mirror, the secondary mirror reflected, and the primary mirror reflected back in the secondary mirror. So, so it's a great shot in that sense. And then I'm also in the reflection in the primary mirror. So you can see me as I'm a little dot, but you can see my hand up pressing the button on my camera. So it's also a selfie. So um, so it took a lot to make that image, to light it and get it just right. I love what it represents in terms of uh, of it being the completed optical system. And, and then it's a shot of myself uh, in something that's in space right now. 
Yeah, it was mutual for me. I was really hoping uh, he would love that image too to put on the cover. So it was uh, totally mutual agreement on that one. Uh, another one for me may seem come across as simple, but it, it's extraordinary for me. If, if you remember the image of them, uh, of the team lowering a kind of a, a temporary clean room over the telescope because they were going to have to move the, the mirrors into another room outside of the clean room that they had to put on this temporary uh, clean room and it, it was lowering down and there's like 20, 30 people in there, you know, spotting it and looking at it and this thing, that 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 exercise was going on for hours and it, you know, the backstory there, it's just the, the dedication uh, and the commitment that this, this team had of, of doing what you would think is the simplest uh, task that, okay, put something over it and move it into another room. That was a major task. And that, that photograph for me, Chris, just really captured that. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that image gives you an idea of what a day in the clean room was like. So if that image that we opened up with uh, is, a, is a gorgeous shot of the, of the clean room, but there's just a single person, but the image that Chris is describing with the 30 people in the clean room to monitor a task, that that is uh, to you know to do and monitor a task. That image is, is gives you an idea as to what a day in Goddard's clean room was like when when Web was being integrated and tested. That's great! Wow. Well, Chris and Chris, it's been such a pleasure yes. speaking with you. The book is Inside the Star Factory: The Creation of the James Webb Space Telescope. NASA's largest and most powerful space observatory. Thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Thank you. Yeah, thank Thanks you for, for allowing us to share our excitement. And those images from that book are, if, if you're looking for a coffee table book, it's incredible. I didn't think that seeing the inside and the building of the telescope would be actually as fascinating, if not more than the images we're seeing from the telescope. But to understand the intricacies and the development and engineering that went into it is mm. mind blowing and gives even more respect for what they're able to create at NASA. Absolutely, absolutely. And like I said, well, like I think it was my favorite photograph was the guy standing in front of the huge um, filters mm -hmm. just in the clean room. Um, the sterile room, just imagining, I had no idea it would take that much or that it needed to be that sterile. Yeah. But indeed. And then the so. story of them having to pack up the telescope, put it into a truck and ship it yeah. to French Guiana to launch. It was, there's so many moving pieces literally to a project like this yeah. that it's, it's great to understand what goes into it. Really a great book. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. And... As a reminder, kpcw.org under the Shows tab and Cool Science Radio or wherever you get your podcasts, it's KPCW Cool Science Radio.